All right, so welcome to this session of the International Marxist University. So my name is Julian. I'm an activist with Fight Back La Riposte Socialiste, which is the Canadian section of the IMT. And this is the session on In Defense of Marxist Economics. So if this is the first session you attend, you might notice that I am pausing between sentences, which is normal. And this is because the event is translated into a dozen languages at the same time. So we want to give them a chance to translate. So before it starts, I'll briefly explain how the session will go. So we will start with a presentation given by comrade Rob Sewell. So Rob is the editor of uh, Socialist Appeal, the paper of the British section of the IMT. And Rob is also the author of several books on Marxist history, Marxist theory and history. So one of them in particular might interest you. So Rob is the co-author of a book called Understanding Marxist Capital, a Reader Guide, which is a very good book with several articles on Marxist, on various aspects of Marxist economics and goes chapter chapters uh, by chunks, chunks of chapters through uh, Marxist capital, explaining the chapters. And this is a book you can purchase on the website of our, of our publishing house, Well Read Books. So I strongly recommend you do so. So before I give it to Rob, I'll briefly explain the, the, the day. So Rob will have 90 minutes to speak, including translation for his presentation. Following that, we'll have a 25-minute break. And we'll come back at 3 p.m. British summertime. And after the break, we'll have an hour of discussion and contributions from other comrades. And following that, uh, Rob will have 30 minutes, including translation, to sum up. All right. So without further ado, I will give it to Rob to, to speak. Are you ready, Rob? Yes. Um, thank you for that. Um, I'd like to welcome comrades and friends from uh, different parts of the of the world who are listening into this particular session on Marxist economics, which hope will be interesting and clearly important. Uh, that uh, ever the optimist, I hope to cover um, the ground in the space of 45 minutes. Okay, I'm very hopeful that I can uh, cover all the material I have in front of me in the space of the time allocated. Uh, I also apologize in advance if I uh, repeat any points from uh, the excellent talk uh, yesterday from Adam Booth, and I will uh, attempt to keep them to, uh, to a minimum. But uh, first of all, we should say that Marxist economics is more relevant today for obvious reasons, that uh, uh, events on a daily basis are confirming the, the truth of Marxist economics. So not simply in the pages of uh, Marxist capital, but in the very real global crisis of capitalism. Of course, the uh, uh, attacks on Marxism and Marx economics uh, have not stopped. They are continuing uh, at full length. This is particularly uh, in the universities, but not uh, only them. I see that Donald Trump himself attacked Marxism on his 4th of July speech. But in the past, they, they attacked Marxism by arguing that capitalism had resolved its problems, that contrary to what Marxism says, they had solved this uh, crisis problem of, of the system. And as a consequence, uh, Marxist economics was false, as were the ideas of Marx. These arguments were particularly uh, prevalent in the 1950s and 60s during the post-war economic upswing, 
where it seemed that the the views that they put forward were supported by the facts. After all, wasn't there full employment? Um, didn't they provide reforms? And weren't there, you know, rising living standards? And therefore, in contrast to the 1930s, they had uh, found means, they found ways of, of resolving these problems of the capitalist system. And in this period, it was the, the great god Keynes uh, that they worshipped at. Yes, he was the fountain of all knowledge. But uh, how things are, are, have changed now. And we can see that the post-war economic upswing, it wasn't simply a boom, it was an upswing, which lasted a period of 25 years, was not the norm, but was an aberration. It was a temporary phenomenon. Of course, 25 years seems a long time, but in the, in the scales of history, it is uh, simply the blink of an eye. Now, the truth of, uh, of any theory, the acid test of any theory, must be measured by how accurately that theory describes the real processes in the economy, including its contradictions, and how far that theory can foresee the future developments. And on on that measure alone, you could say that Marxist economics has been shown to be correct. After all, it explained that crisis was inherent within the capitalist system and that all the ills of capitalism would once again re-emerge. And this has been borne out by reality. Whereas, on the, on the contrary, bourgeois economy and bourgeois eco- economics has demonstrated its complete bankruptcy. There are two broad schools of bourgeois economics, uh, one of which is monetarism, uh, which is orthodox economics, and the other is Keynesianism but neither of which have been able to explain or foresee anything for that matter. I mean, you don't have to take my word for that. According to Paul Krugman, who is the winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics, he said that much of the past 30 years, macroeconomics, that is bourgeois economics, was, and I quote, spectacularly useless at best and positively harmful at worst. Uh, Barry uh, Eisengreen, a prominent American um, uh, economic historian, has said that, I quote, the crisis has cast into doubt much of what we thought we knew about economics. In other words, they had no idea of what is happening. It's quite funny that in uh, 2008, the Queen of England visited the London School of Economics and asked the embarrassing question, why did they not foresee the 2008 crisis coming? And basically they replied, well, uh, things are very complicated, you see. Ten minutes, Rob. It's quite ironic. Compared to the past, these people were very, very confident, overconfident. In fact, uh, one of them, Robert Lucas, who was the the professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and another Nobel Prize winner for economics, stated uh, not so long ago, and I quote, the central problem of depression prevention has been solved. In other words, there'll be no more depressions. Again, he, like the other uh, gang of economists, were mesmerized by the uh, capitalist system and their efficient market hypotheses, as they called it. In other words, that the market, left alone, had eradicated crises on their own account. But when that theory uh, collapsed uh, unceremoniously 
in the crisis of 2008. Alan Greenspan, the former head of the Federal Reserve of America, who was nicknamed the, the maestro for his, uh, his work, said, well, uh, of course, this is only a once-in-a-century event. It will never happen again. And yet, uh, what, 10 years later, we're in a far deeper crisis than even in 2008. That bourgeois uh, economic theory is so bad that even the giant uh, corporations don't rely on economists anymore. They rely on astrologers for looking at the future. Yes, a, a number of the major uh, corporations and, and banks employ stro- astrologers to see how the market is going to work out. Apparently, they have a better track record than bourgeois economists. But uh, no surprise there, I suppose. Yet uh, these economists, these bourgeois economists, has, have the uh, audacity to uh, ridicule Marxism. They'd, they, they, they laughed at Marxist uh, predictions about crises and the theory of increasing misery and so on. But as we say in, in, uh, in England, he who laughs last, laughs best. The, uh, the so-called golden age of capitalism in the 1950s and 60s saw a colossal upswing of the productive forces. But this was uh, due to special factors that arose from the Second World War. And it's these, uh, these factors, this continuation of factors that will not be repeated again. But the key factor, if you want to call it that, for the upswing was the growth of world trade. That the tariff barriers were, which were erected in the 1930s were torn down. And uh, as a result, world trade and world production increased dramatically like a spiraling of growth. And this allowed capitalism to partially and for a temporary period, overcome its fundamental contradictions. Above all, the conflict of the development of the productive forces hemmed in by the nation state and private ownership. And this, uh, this again, appeared to uh, invalidate Marxism. After all, if, if capitalism can deliver the goods, then uh, what's the point in changing the system? What's the point in Marxism? Of course, this uh, uh, fireworks of economic development... Uh, only affected the advanced industrial countries. The, the, the former colonial countries, the so-called third world, who were in the grip of imperialist domination, were left behind. In fact, they were more exploited uh, than ever before with adverse terms of trade. But this uh, so-called golden age of capitalism finally came, came to an end in 1974 in the slump of that year. And, and this, is, uh, this slump of 1974 was a turning point, really, in the development of capitalism in the post-war period. Capitalism now began to revert to normal. Mass unemployment returned everywhere, and this was followed by massive attacks on the working class, particularly a drive to um, restore the rate of profit, which had been falling in the 1960s. Keynesianism was abandoned because the enormous inflation on a world scale. 20 minutes, Rob. And uh, instead, they turned to monetarism, orthodox uh, economic uh, policies. But this didn't solve the problem. In fact, it made matters, matters worse. The capitalist system, as compared to the past, was now in, a, in an impasse. Compared to the 1950s and 60s, uh, growth was lower, production was lower, employment was lower, profitabilities were lower. All the industries were, were lower than before. But the capitalists were now uh, 
euphoric in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the shift to capitalism in China. This gave him a, a new lease of life. It provided uh, new markets and new fields of investment. Globalization became the buzzword, and they took full advantage of the situation. And, and this, together with other things like credit in particular, allowed capitalism to maintain itself up until the crisis of 2008. Then came the, the shock, the terrible shock of a de the deepest crisis since the 1930s. And this shock uh, threw bourgeois economics into, into a crisis. All their computer models, all their mathematical equations, none of them would have any use. They could not foresee anything and they could not explain anything. Just a little quote from the, the Economist magazine, which is a right-wing free market magazine from 2009. I quote, of all the economic bubbles that have been pricked, few have burst more spectacularly than the reputation of economics itself. You can say the bourgeois economics is bankrupt because it has no interest in discovering the real laws of capitalism. Its role is simply to justify capitalism. They are apologists for the capitalist system, nothing more. They believe uh, superficially, of course, that, that capitalism is driven by confidence. And they think that uh, they can maintain confidence or restore confidence simply by pulling a few economic levers. This shows a, a real superficial bankrupt approach to uh, economics. And is in contrast, even with the ideas of the classical economists, such as Adam Smith and, and David Ricardo, who at least it tried seriously to understand the workings of capitalism. And their observations, uh, they, they, did, they discovered quite a lot, and Marx praised them for those uh, observations. But above all, what they had in common, these classical economists, is that they based their ideas on the, the labor theory of value. This is, this is quite a, a simple uh, theory in reality, which says that the, the common feature of all commodities is that they are produced by human labor, and that, and that the value of a commodity is determined by the amount of socially necessary labor that's gone into its production. And that, that, that the price of a, of, of a commodity in the last analysis is a reflection of the underlying value of a commodity. But this uh, idea that uh, labor produces value was a very uh, subversive one for capitalism. And therefore, for political reasons, no other, for political reasons, they discarded it. And in its place, they came forward with the mumbo-jumbo of uh, marginal utility theory uh, and other so-called subjective explanations about uh, individual preferences and market relations and so on. And it was left to Karl Marx, uh, who based himself, he based himself on the classical uh, economists, who developed these ideas, developed their ideas, and developed the labor theory of value. Uh, out of this, he was able to discover the real secret of, uh, of capitalism and the creation of surplus value. In other words, uh, where profit came from. And he explained that profit comes from the unpaid labor of the working class. And it is the basis of exploitation. Of course, the uh, bourgeois economics deny exploitation takes place. 
they say that the labor is simply a factor of production, along with uh, land, capital, we've mentioned enterprise. 30 minutes. And uh, because labor receives wages, then it gets its just rewards, just like capital gets profits for its just rewards. This is false. Labor is not simply a factor of production. Labor, on the contrary, is the only source of value, of increased and new value. You can have a factory, if it, but if there's no workers in the factory, it's not going to produce anything. And you can wait for as long as you want. It will simply decay and, and rot away and, and rust away. But as soon as you have the application of living labor, then you have the creation of value and new values. But what, what Marx discovered was that uh, uh, the worker was not paid for his labor. What the worker was paid for was, was his energies, was his abilities to work. That's all. Marx called this uh, labor power. Uh, but once the capitalist uh, paid for uh, the worker's abilities, then he could do as he wanted with these abilities. But therefore, he, he put them to work. Of course, the working day then is is divided. For part of the working day, the, wor- the worker creates uh, additional value that covers their wages. But that's only a part. The rest of the working day, they produce surplus value for the employers, for the bosses. Of course, un- under capitalism, uh, exploitation is, is hidden, is disguised. But if you compare capitalist exploitation to other forms of class society, it becomes more clear. After all, capitalism is simply a stage in the development of human history. But if if you take feudalism, for example, exploitation is is very clear. The serf works works on the Lord's land for some some days for free, free labour. So that's quite clear. Under slavery, it's also, uh, I suppose, self-evident, because the slave is owned by the slave owner. Even even the the slave, however, uh, doesn't produce completely surplus value because they have to live and they have to have food themselves. So they have to cover their own uh, uh, livelihoods. Under capitalism, it's a bit more disguised because you have the the surplus uh, labor, like like the uh, serfs working on the Lord's land for free, and unnecessary labor are actually combined in the same day. It's all part of the working day. So when the worker works sufficient time to produce the valleys to cover their wages, uh, a bell doesn't sound in the factory saying, okay, you've done it now, you've covered your wages. The working day is continuous. But we do know that after he's, uh, after he's furnished enough for his wages, he continues to work. And with that, he produces surplus value. The problem that the capitalist uh, uh, economy faces is that um, they're producing for a market uh, without any regard for anything. They're not aware of any limits to the market. They just uh, produce in the hope that they can sell their produce. And this is a, a reflection of the anarchy of capitalism, the anarchy of production. It, it is, no one plans it. It just happens. But within this anarchy, there are laws, there are underlying laws, which Marx attempted to discover. 
Otherwise, the whole system would uh, collapse at a certain point if there was no underlying logic to it. But Marx himself, in analysing capitalism, didn't simply look at the surface of reality, the surface of it, where the bourgeois uh, economists concentrate their efforts and attention. He attempted to get to the essence of the matter, not, not appearances, but the essence. And therefore, he tried to look below the surface, to look at the underlying process. Uh, for instance, you know, um, for instance, you could say that it appear, the appearance, it appears that, that the sun, nav- you know, uh, navigates the earth. But we know it's the opposite way, way around, that the earth navigates the sun. But it's an appearance. Also, the reason why the sun rises in the east and settles in the west is because the earth rotates towards the east. So if we just viewed things from the point of the surface of a superficial understand, uh, understanding, you wouldn't understand what's going on. Been forty minutes, or fifty minutes to go. Of course, under capitalism, there's a, there's a huge division of labour. Production is geared to uh, not to, to fulfil an individual want, but uh, to fulfil others' want, other wants, other people's wants. So ex- exchange becomes central to this question. So, with with the world division of labour, we have the world market. In which is flooded with billions and trillions of commodities. The question arises: How much should be produced of each commodity? What decides? <laughs> Given the the anarchy of of, of the market, uh, no one decides. There's no conscious decision. There's no plan. And the, and the bourgeois say, "Well, it's the market that decides everything." But Marx explains that uh, no, it's it's the law of value that really underpins everything. Uh, the capitalists uh, don't know. Uh, they simply uh, produce to sell. They're blind to the processes. Therefore, sometimes they produce too much. And as a result, the price of their commodities will fall below their value. And if there's a glut, uh, they won't make any profits. They won't sell their goods. But sometimes they produce too little. And therefore, prices rise above the, the, the value of a commodity. And they make super profits as a result. Clearly, market prices are affected by the law of supply and demand. And Marx never denied uh, this. But prices fluctuate uh, due to the supply of demand around a certain axis. And this axis is determined by the cost of production. However much a pint of uh, the price of a pint of beer varies it will consistently uh, cost less than, say, a washing machine or a motor car because the costs of production are far less to produce beer than it is a motor car or a washing machine. Hey, Rob, be careful to make noise with your sheets. Apparently, it's a bit disturbing. Be careful with that. But what constitutes the cost of production? It's made up of commodities or things that are products produced by labor time. Therefore, we come back again to the law of value, which underpins this question. This uh, access, as I talked about, uh, in which there's a fluctuation in prices according to uh, uh, supply and demand, is something like the sea level. And the sea level can rise and fall according to the pull of the tides. But still, uh, the sea level exists and it is central. Another factor is that um, Marx made a great distinction between what he called constant capital and variable capital. So what does this uh, constant capital mean? 
Well, these these are uh, money em- employed in, in, into machinery, buildings, raw materials, all of which transfer their value into a new product. They don't all do this at once. Uh, you have depreciation, <coughs> wear and tear, but also the use of materials. They're all in the process of production. All are transferred into the new uh, uh, products. This constant capital doesn't produce new values. It simply transfers the, la- the, the values from the, the raw materials into the new products. Whereas Marx explained that there is variable capital, which is that, that which is invested in wages and, and, and the workers. And it is the, 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 the capital employed in, in variable capital, which produces new value, surplus value. So constant, value, constant uh, uh, capital simply transfers its uh, value. Variable capital adds to and increases value. And, and Marx explained that the, the rate of exploitation is really the ratio between the surplus created by the, in, in production and the cost of wages. The more surplus uh, value that can be squeezed out for less wages and the greater the exploitation. And this has been uh, this attempt to, to squeeze more uh, surplus value out of the working class has been a feature particularly for the last 40 or 50 years where it's been intensified. In fact, that's the whole purpose of capitalist production is the creation of the maximum surplus value, the maximum profit. 15 minutes. So yeah, you have a whole, thing, a whole number of things introduced. Just-in-time production, for instance. Flexibility of labor, zero-hour contracts. All this is used to intensify uh, the uh, the exploitation of the working class. So the greater the productivity, the greater the profitability for capitalism. The problem for capitalism is that uh, it has to realize these profits. They have to sell the commodities. And uh, the problem they have is that, that markets are limited. Therefore, there's been a rise of what they call excess capacity over the past uh, number of years. The, the productive potential has outgrown the ability of the market to consume the goods. Clearly, 2008 came as a, a terrific shock for the capitalists and their um, economists. They realized that something's fundamentally wrong. All the old theories they had, the efficient market hypotheses and so on, has to be thrown out the window. They, 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 they not only face a crisis, they're facing a depression. Because you have... A, the, the, the monetarists, uh, the orthodox uh, wing, see this solution as to increase profitability. And therefore, they, they see they need to reduce costs, particularly uh, wage costs, cut wages. Of course, this cuts demand. While the, the Keynesians, uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, say that they need to improve demand, which is deficient, by um, deficit financing uh, and public expenditure. But the reality is that is the reality is that the the monetarists and the Keynesians are both right and wrong at the same time, because they are pointing to different sides of the same problem, which is the basic contradiction of capitalism. Yes, it's true that the capitalist crisis certainly does mean a collapse in profitability. There's no doubt about that. But to, but to get the the wheels moving once again, they have to restore profitability. 
But as I said, to do that, they have to cut wages, which cuts the market. That's why you have this uh, this uh, paradox that uh, uh, some capitalists want uh, their competitors to increase wages so that it expands the market, but they don't want their own way workers to get wage rises. But also, uh, as the Keynesians say, that the uh, crisis also leads to a, 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 a collapse in demand, which is true. So they're, they're in favour, perhaps, of, of increasing uh, consumer wages. Uh, they certainly want the, the state to step in and uh, prop up demand through public spending. But, of course, uh, government uh, government money comes from taxes. And, it, and if you, you tax the capitalists, then it will uh, cut investment. But if you tax the workers, you will cut into consumption. Some say, oh, well, why can't you have borrowing? We can borrow the money. But borrowing is simply spending tomorrow's tax revenues, nothing more. And borrowing has to be paid back with interest. And if they, uh, they say, oh, well, well, workers should get wages, wage rises, which we are in favour of, by the way, on a capitalist basis, increased wages will cut into uh, capitalist profits and therefore cause problems on that front. Anyway, capitalists are not interested in, in markets. They're interested in profitable markets. Therefore, the idea, you know, the, the solution of Keynesianism and, and, and monetarism is, is no solution at all. Of course, in the 1950s and 60s, the, the, the heyday of Keynesianism was uh, seen as, as the real way out. In fact, Keynesian ideas actually influenced uh, uh, so-called Marxist thinkers at the time. In different ways, uh, uh, Paul, Paul Sweezy, Ernest Mandel, Tony Cliff were all influenced by, by Keynesian ideas. 60 minutes, 30 to go. Tony Cliff, for instance, put forward the idea of a, of a permanent arms economy, which is a variant of, of Keynesianism, if the truth is to be told. And he said that c- capitalism could escape crisis through military spending, as this would uh, prevent overproduction and it would uh, mop up the surplus that was produced into arms production, because arms production is, uh, produces junk uh, or produces, is destroyed. And therefore, they said there could be no, no um, overproduction as a result. Of course, that, that uh, theory was shown to be false, that arms expenditure is not an advantage for capitalism, but is a burden on the economy. It is no accident that the two major economies that had either no or hardly any military spending, which was Germany and, and Japan, developed the most and were the most successful. So Marx explained that capital was not simply uh, buildings and uh, factories and so on and machinery. It wasn't simply a thing, but was a social relationship. In other words, capital and capitalism is based on on classes and and relationships to the means of production. In fact, the class struggle itself, or the basis of the class struggle, is the the fight over this uh, surplus. The more wages that the workers get, the less goes in profits. And vice versa, the more profits that can be made, less goes to the working class. And you've seen it over the past period. The, uh, the, the colossal amount of wealth that is being created is now be, being pocketed by the super rich of, of capitalism. 26 uh, billion is of more wealth than half of humanity put together. At the same time, the share received by the working class over the last 20, 30 years has gone down compared to the capitalists. 
But, but capitalist production is obviously based on contradictions. That's the problem. On, on the one hand, the capitalist has to squeeze as much as they possibly can out of the unpaid labour of the working class. They're in, they're in a constant battle to, to, to re reduce costs. At the same time, they need to uh, sell these uh, commodities they produce on the, on the open market in order to realise their profits. And there is a contradiction between the uh, production of surplus value in the factories and the realisation of uh, surplus value in the market. In other words, the sale of a commodity. And it is this, the basis of this contradiction that lies this uh, problem of overproduction in capitalist society. Under the laws of competition, every capitalist is in struggle, in a fight with all the other capitalists. And the only way they can compete is to increase the productivity of labour. Marx explained that the, the laws of capitalism is to drive accumulation. The capitalists are forced to introduce new technology, new machinery in order to compete. And if they don't do that, they can be uh, undermined. They can be destroyed by their competitors. So that, so, so that the historical function of the ruling class, of, ca of the capitalist class, is precisely to invest and accumulate. As Marx said, it's accumulation for accumulation's sake. Of course, this, this, this vast increase, in, increase in, in productive capacity means an ability to produce more and more and more commodities. Therefore, at a certain point, uh, overproduction is, is reached. You have a crisis, a slump. And the only way capitalism can uh, overcome this uh, slump is to, is to destroy this overproduction and, and destroy the means of production. 70 minutes, 20 to go. As a result, uh, factories are closed, workers are thrown out of work and production becomes idle. But out of this collapse, there becomes a further concentration of capital into fewer and fewer hands. Uh, Marx ex explained uh, this, I could give a quote. There comes a moment at which the market manifests itself as too narrow for production. This occurs at the end of a cycle, but it merely means the market is glutted. Overproduction, but it, it, it merely means the market is glutted overproduction is manifest. Now, this is, is not a theory of uh, underconsumption, as some argue. If only demand was to pick up, that, that will solve the problem. Of course, theories of, of underconsumption do exist, uh, and they're all linked to Keynesianism. And basically, they say that by simply re uh, raising wages, the crisis will be resolved. But as explained, if you do that, you just cut into profitability. In fact, if you, give, if you paid the working class the full value of its labour, it would mean that profits would be uh, would come to an end, would finish, and of course capitalist production would then come to a full stop. And this 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 kind of reveals the the, the inner contradictions of capitalism. But the reason why the system uh, not only survives but uh, moves forward is because it, it, the capitalist class takes the surplus produced by the working class and reinvests it back into production. This in, a turn, then in its turn creates a new market and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the cycle of capitalism uh, develops. Of course, there are uh, many contradictions uh, in the capitalist system. Uh, one of those is the question of, of, of a fall in rate of profit. 
which is a tendency under capitalism, as we explained uh, earlier, that um, the rate of surplus value of exploitation is the ratio between surplus and the cost of, of wages. But there's a, another uh, a problem, as I've just mentioned, the question of a rate of profit, which is different from that. The rate of profit is the revenue uh, from sales, that is the income, minus the cost of producing. In other words, the rate of profit is the, is the measure of how much profit grows in a, in a, in a company. And of course, there are different rates of profit uh, affecting different industries. And there's a tendency to, to, uh, to uh, equalize the rate of profit, where capital employed in a lower rate of profit industry is, 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 tends to be transferred into the higher rate of profit industries. But uh, this accumulation of capital that we've mentioned more and more increases the constant capital element as opposed to variable capital. More and more is invested in uh, factories, in machinery, uh, and, and so on, of that nature, in, in constant capital, than is employed in variable capital, employing workers. In fact, it's a constant attempt by capitalism to uh, displace workers by machines. But the problem is that uh, surplus value comes from precisely the workers, not the machines. So this increase in accumulation, this increase in constant capital, results in a tendency for the rate of profit to decline. But as Marx explains, this is, this is a tendency, and there are countervailing factors involved here, which allows them to get around this, uh, this uh, contradiction. They can lower the, uh, the, the cost of constant capital, for instance. They can engage in, in, in foreign trade. 80 minutes. You have 10 minutes left. But the main factor there, and the main way of getting around it is to intensify the exploitation of the workers in the factories that, that, that remain. And that's what we've seen over the last 40 years. So in the 60s, you had a declining rate of profit. And then in the 1980s and the 1990s and so on, where you had an intensification of an attack on the working class, the rate of profit started to, to rise. Some people have said that the, this tendency for the rate of profit to fall is the explanation of capitalist crisis. But this is not, uh, not correct. This is not correct. It can certainly uh, contribute and it can aggravate crisis. That's, that's for sure. But the real cause of capitalist crisis, uh, which Marx explained many times, was a crisis of overproduction where the colossal development of, ca of capacity reaches the limits of the capitalist market. Of course, uh, there are, again, other ways of, of getting around it uh, by increasing credit, for instance, because credit allows capitalism to expand the market artificially for the time being, uh, which allows it to go beyond its limits for a period. Of course, uh, we see today uh, the credit uh, mountain that we have accumulated has turned into a, a mountain of debt, which is weighing down on the capitalist system. And, they, and this will also prevent any real recovery of capitalism. So you see that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a system based on contradictions. And we see even the, the, uh, the difficulties that the capitalist system has, has, has um, got into at the present time. Because accumulation, which is the driving force of capitalism, that is investment, has grown to a halt everywhere. In Europe in the recent period, uh, 
it fell by it fell by twenty percent in Germany. Capital the production of capital goods fell by seventeen percent in March compared to February, which was double the fall in consumer goods. Bankruptcies and and closures are taking place everywhere, and millions of workers have been thrown out of work. But as was said uh, yesterday, this is not a, a a cyclical crisis of capitalism. That the the system has exhausted itself. This is where historical materialism comes in. The capitalist system itself has, has reached its limits, and therefore the system's already declined. It's in its death agony. We're heading now for a for a deep uh, world depression, and there's no easy escape from this. In the 1930s, they couldn't escape from it except by world war, which is ruled out. So this crisis is going to last for years and years and years. Of course, there's going to be ups and downs in in the in the in the situation, but the but the general trajectory will be downwards. Of course, there's no final crisis of capitalism in the sense that the capitalist system just disintegrates. That's the end of it. No, it can keep on going indefinitely for that in that sense, at the expense of the working class. Of course, it can go on until it's overthrown. But it it can only continue at the expense of the working class. That's the point. So all the gains of the past are going to be eliminated as far as capitalism is concerned. It cannot afford reforms, only counter-reforms. And therefore, the working class is going to fight. And there's going to be class struggle everywhere. And this will lay the basis for revolutionary events everywhere. The only way that we can rid ourselves of capitalist crisis is the overthrow of capitalism. There can be no way out for the working class on a capitalist basis. And that's the real message of Marxism, which has been confirmed by events. Thank you, comrades. All right. Thank you very much, Rob. That was exactly, exactly 90 minutes. Well done. It was very good. So now, yeah, thanks, Rob, again. So now we will break for 24 minutes and come back at 3 p.m. British summertime. And we'll have a one-hour discussion. Uh, The first speaker will be Joe Russell from Britain. All right, so see you all in uh, 24 minutes. All right, welcome back to the session on uh, Marxist economics. So just before we go into the discussion, I have an important announcement to make. So on July 14, uh, Comrade Amin, that is active in Pakistan in the Progressive Youth Alliance in Karachi, was uh, abducted from his home by the Rangers, a paramilitary group in Pakistan. And the Pakistani state is known for its brutality. In many cases, victims of Rangers have been tortured and many have lost their lives. So we're appealing to all those watching and listening today to hold protests against the crimes of the Pakistani state. So you can write letters and emails to Pakistani embassies in your country either in personal capacity or on behalf of uh, your organization. So a, a video and article have been published on the website of the IMT, marxist.com, which explains the situation. So I strongly encourage everybody to share the article on social media. So you can also add the hashtags uh, like release Amin, uh, stop state abduct- abduction in Pakistan, and hashtag IMU2020. All right, so right now we'll start the discussion with Comrade Joe Russell from Britain. So you'll have a 15-minute, including translation, Joe. Take it away. Thank you very much. 
Thanks. So, hello, comrades. Greetings from London. Uh, in 1960, during the post-war boom, Ted Grant, the founder of our organisation, or one of the main founders, wrote an article called Will There Be a Slump? This was written to explain that despite the long period of capitalist boom, the fundamental laws of capitalist production, distribution and exchange remained the same. And that therefore, inevitably, there would be a slump. Uh, And this slump did indeed come on a global scale in 1973. So I would like to talk about some of the arguments used by Ted Grant in this article to argue against some of the popular ideas of the left reformists today, particularly the policy of universal basic income and quantitative easing. Now, when I say argue against universal basic income, what I in fact mean is to highlight that it is not a solution to the crisis. We are, of course, not against the idea that everyone receiving a basic level level of income is a good thing. It is. In fact, we would support any such campaign, as our tendency did in the Great Depression with the following slogan, either give us work or full pay. However, we would support such a campaign while asking the fundamental question, who pays for it? And we would answer by saying that the capitalists must pay. We would say that everyone deserves a basic income, uh, the necessities of life, and that the capitalists must be expropriated in order to achieve this. In other words, we would turn a campaign for a reform uh, into a socialist demand. Five minutes. Because, Because we must explain that universal basic income, as the reformists suggest, where the state pays somehow to stimulate demand, will not solve the economic crisis. The left reformists of today and and every period uh, do not understand the cause of the crisis. They only see the symptoms. The cause of capitalist crisis is overproduction of both consumer goods and of capital goods. And as Rob explained, this is not the same as underconsumption. So the proponents of modern monetary theory and of universal basic income, uh, they're just the same as the Keynesians because they do not understand overproduction. They think that universal basic income can stimulate demand, which they think will turn the economy. They think it will move it from recession and growing inequality into growth with shrinking inequality. But as Ted Grant explained, by analysing the period of growth of the post-war boom, the reality shows a very different picture. He gives the following statistics about the British economy. In 1938, at the tail end of the Great Depression, consumers made up 67.2% of the final demand in the British economy. Yeah. By, sure, thank you. Uh, So by 1957, at the height of the post-war boom, consumers only made up 54.2% of the final demand. This is 13% less proportionally. So it was in fact an increase in final demand through exports and through capital formation. It was that that coincided with the boom. While the proportion of state demand and of consumer demand were unchanged or even lower, respectively. So as Ted Grant explains, and I I quote, Ten minutes. These figures demonstrate irrefutably that the share going to the working class relative to the total production has 
baller. Statistics from America, Italy, Japan, and West Germany demonstrate the same thing. And the bourgeois eco uh, economists understand the same thing. I now quote a report from the United Nations in 1959. The economic upswing has been based primarily on large-scale investment in fixed assets and a rapid growth of private expenditure on automobiles and other durable goods. No part was played in this process by rising government expenditure. And then finally, I quote Enoch Powell, a former financial secretary to the Treasury. This increase of production in 1959 in Britain was part and parcel of a general trade recovery. The recovery, like the recession, has taken place in response to other forces of a wider and different character, i.e. not state expenditure. So unlike the assertions of modern monetary theory, reducing inequality will not automatically stimulate capitalist growth. Increasing the proportion of government spending will not stimulate capitalist growth. On the contrary, a period of growth develops due to increased scope for private investment, profitable private investment. 14 minutes, time to sum up. So in every way, we can see that the Keynesians and, and the Neo-Keynesians are looking at everything upside down. Whatever their intentions, such ideas put forward by so-called socialists only serve to confuse the issue and to diffuse the workers' revolutionary mood. They use it to put on hold the pursuit of genuine socialist demands. Time to sum up. We must expose them for this by asking the following question. Who will pay, capital or labour? And if not socialist demands now, then when? Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Our next speaker will be Stefan from Sweden, followed by Adam. Okay, thank you. Uh, the upcoming bourgeoisie based themselves on progressive ideas. The upcoming bourgeoisie based themselves on progressive ideas. In the struggle against the old aristocratic landowners and feudalism. In this period, we had great philosophers like Spinoza and Hegel and classical economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Marxist economics was the, the culmination of classical bourgeois economics, but also made the old thinking obsolete. In fact, Marxist economics is not simply economics, but historical materialism applied to capitalism. We understand capitalism as a specific society, as one stage in the historical development. And uh, my translation cut out, but I will restart it now. Uh, Marx said, every child knows that any nation that stopped working, not for a year, but let us say just for a few weeks, would perish. In other words, production is fundamental to human societies and history. It is a self-evident fact that before anything, one has to eat. But of course, production was never carried out by the ruling class, but by slaves, peasants, and workers. Of course, not all production in capitalism is capitalist production. When uh, peasants grow crops for themselves, or when I cook dinner for my family, this is not capitalist production. We need to clearly differentiate between what is common to all human societies and that which is specific to capitalism. The bourgeois economists simply assume the categories of capitalism as given. 
as super historic and applicable to all societies and all stages of development. So we can almost talk about capitalist production for them, even in the earliest human societies, even uh, if only less developed. They never critically develop or explain money or commodity, for example. Instead, they just assume them as self-evident. But how? But I need money to buy it. In capitalism, the worker has no other means to make a livelihood. They own uh, no means of production. They don't toil on a farm or own it, etc. Workers sell their capacity to work and receive a wage in exchange. There is a struggle between labor and capital over the distribution between wages and profits or surplus value. If the workers get higher wages, then profits must suffer and vice versa. This is an irreconcilable struggle, a contradiction where only one side can win. Marx's analysis shows most crucially that there exists a class of people with the choice than to sell their labor power and thereby being exploited. Of course, the bourgeois economists shied back from these conclusions and retreated from scientific investigation into what Marx and Engels called vulgar economics. Capital is not a dead thing, but a living thing. Marx wrote it's vampire-like. It only lives by sucking living labor, and it lives the more, the more labor it sucks. In academia, they teach this in a completely sterile and apolitical way. As uh, Marxists, we need to understand this as political economy, and that eventually the struggle between labor and capital will leave the economic domain and become political. Ten minutes. If you look at recent events in Sudan, Lebanon, or Chile, these are fundamentally struggles over surplus value. They could revolve around economic demands for a start that spilled out onto the streets in revolutionary mass movements. And in this sense, became the embryo for a political struggle for power. Of course, not yet consciously in the minds of the work ruling class. Revolutionaries say that there is naturally, in the natural uh, progression of things, a struggle for the power to decide. And that it's the most advanced where the workers refuse to accept the rule of the bosses and demand full control. When it's uh, about cuts or counter-reforms on a state level, for example, it can quickly become a question of state power. And we support a worker state. So that's the point I want to make, that a scientific analysis of capitalism reveals it as simply one stage in human history with a beginning and an end. It will necessarily end with the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism by the workers. These are extremely dangerous ideas for our class enemies, uh, not to be taught in the schools, for example. But this is a scientific result. Exploitation is an objective fact. Socialism is uh, not just an opinion. It's the culmination of human thought over centuries and millennia as the culmination of the struggle between classes over the course of human history. We elevate it to a conscious level. This, I think, is why our tendency takes Marxist economics seriously because it has serious implications for revolutionary politics. It gives us the basis to understand the mechanics of this system. Time to sum up. In fighting for understanding capitalism, we also struggle to understand the conditions for its overthrow. Thank you, comrades. Thank you, Stefan. And I apologize for the Spanish translation. That was a bit laborious this time. So next up is uh, Adam Booth from Britain. Adam, are you there? Adam, can you hear me? 
Adam, are you ready to go? Right. Go for it. Hold on, Adam. Apparently, there's no sound on the live stream, but apparently, people people can hear me, but not you. Is it, is 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 that better now? Hello. Uh, yeah, it's better. Yeah, I've been told it's better. Carry on. Okay, great. So as I was saying, Capital was a polemic written in the language of political economy. Marx described it as being the most terrible missile hurled at the heads of the bourgeoisie. He said, I hope to deal the bourgeoisie a theoretical blow from which it will never recover. Now, as the picture behind me shows, this was written in 1867. But despite being over 150 years old, capital is more relevant now than at the time it was written. Now, despite what this picture says uh, behind me, Marx wasn't some sort of prophet. Rather, he had a method. He had an analytical framework that allowed him to understand and explain the world. And as Stefan just said, this is a, a method based on historical materialism, but most importantly, on dialectical materialism. And in fact, Lenin once remarked that in order to understand capital, you first had to read all of Hegel. Now, I wouldn't uh, go as far as to say that, but you definitely shouldn't just jump in at the deep end in terms of trying to read capital. How many comrades do we know who've tried to read capital and then they give up at the third chapter because they've never read any other Marxist economics before? It's important to understand the trajectory of Marx's economic thought. Marx began as a philosopher, basing himself on the dialectics of Hegel and the materialism of Feuerbach. But it was actually Engels who alerted Marx to the importance of economic theory based on his experience in the industrial heartland of Manchester in England. Five minutes. Because it was here in Britain that you saw the highest point of uh, political economy that, uh, that Stefan just talked about with the ideas of Adam Smith and David Ricardo. And that's because it was in Britain that capitalism was most developed and therefore you could see the laws of capitalism in the purest form. But these British economists like Smith and Ricardo were limited because of the bourgeois individualistic mindset. They had a labour theory of value, as Rob said, but it, and they had other general economic laws. But their ideas were very reductionist. All they did was look at the individuals and the individual acts of exchange within the economy. Marx referred to it as the Robinson Crusoe method, because all of the um, thought experiments were about two men on an island. As though capitalist society was just lots of individuals just exchanging with each other and no interconnectivity, no motion. For these bourgeois economists, they thought everything was about rational individual agents. And they thought, therefore, that if everyone acted in their own individual interest, the overall result would be good for society because of the invisible hand. And you had others like the French economist Jean-Baptiste Say, who, who, uh, who, who put forward the idea of the efficient market, that everything would work out as long as the market decided. And this is like the free market libertarians that we see today. But Marx had a dialectical understanding of capitalism and of the economy. In Capital, he does deal with very high level of abstraction, and there are symbols and equations. But then what Marx does is zoom into the workplace and look at what these mean in practice, what they mean concretely. Ten minutes. Because the economy is not some sort of abstract equation. Rather, Marx shows the economy fundamentally is a battle of living forces, of flesh and blood. As Marx says, capitalism comes into being with blood and dirt dripping from every pore. And Marx shows that, in fact, what you have is this chaotic, dynamic system in, under capitalism. And what he does is he uses dialectics to look at one part of the system holding another part constant, 
uncovers the dynamics and the laws of motion of one aspect of capitalism and then another. And then he brings all of these parts together to see how the whole economy interacts. And in doing so, what he shows is that you can have rational agents under capitalism, even if you assume rational agents. Even if you assume rational agents acting rationally, the overall effect is something completely irrational as a whole in terms of capitalism going into crisis. Marx shows that there are Marx shows that there are laws to capitalism, laws of motion, but there are uh, there are a case of order arising out of chaos. It's a case of necessity expressing itself through accident. In other words, you have these emergent dynamics that are the result of lots of individuals going about their lives, trying to make ends meet. But the, the, the fact is we're not isolated individuals. We're forced to interact with each other. And most importantly, we're forced to interact on a class basis. And so it's not a Robinson Crusoe thought experiment. It's a question of class struggle. And the thing is, these laws of capitalism, they impose themselves through competition. There are objective laws independent of the subjective will of the individual capitalists. There are laws that impose themselves on the capitalists and force them to attack the workers. It's not about morality or benevolence. But these laws can be uncovered. They might seem mysterious, but we can uncover them and discover them. And by understanding these laws, we can overthrow them and replace them with new laws, socialist laws. And that's the importance of Marxist economic ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Next up is Nelson Wan from Britain. Are you ready, Nelson? Yeah, I can hear the translation. Comrades, I'd like to speak about Keynesianism. The ruling class has many methods that it can try and use to get out of a crisis. One of these is increasing government spending, as favoured by Keynesians. Although most left reformists worship Keynes, he was not a socialist. He wanted to save capitalism from itself. I quote, The class four will find me on the side of the educated bourgeoisie. The reason why reformists promote Keynes is that his theory appears to offer a way to make capitalism work without a revolution, i.e. without touching the question of who owns and controls the productive forces. Instead of expropriating the capitalists, all we need to do is increase government spending to boost effective demand, which means ability to pay, and the crisis will be solved. But there's a big problem. Under capitalism, the state does not have money of its own. As Rob mentioned, either they have to raise it through taxes, which eats into the very demand they are trying to boost, or they borrow the money. But all this money needs to be paid back with interest. Credit is therefore only a temporary means of expanding the market today, but at the expense of the market tomorrow. As Marx explained, the problem in capitalist crisis is not lack of demand, but a lack of profitable markets. And this is linked to the question of overproduction, the ability of capitalists to produce commodities. This tends to outstrip the ability for them to be sold at a profit. As Marx also explained, the methods that the capitalists have for using to get out of a crisis will prepare the ground for an even bigger crisis. This applies to Keynesianism. China in the last decade is a perfect example. With the global crisis of 2008, China responded with the world's largest spending program, the equivalent of over half a trillion dollars, 
mostly on infrastructure and industrial projects. To give an idea of the size of this, more concrete was poured in China every two years than the USA poured in the entire 20th century. It is true that this helped China avoid a recession in this period, and it helped prop up the world economy. You had five minutes. But now the effects are turning into their opposite. China's total debt is now over 317% of GDP. It has more than doubled in only a few years. The system is reaching its limits. Every year, the growth of the Chinese economy has slowed down. The stimulus helped in the short term, but it has created enormous problems in the long term. And this comes back to overproduction. Much of the development in China has outstripped the ability of the market to profitably absorb it. There are entire ghost cities where hundreds and thousands of homes and offices are empty because no one can afford them and they cannot make a profit for developers. The development of Chinese industry makes worldwide overproduction worse. For example, Chinese steel capacity has massively increased. World demand for steel is about 1.5 billion tons, but global capacity for producing steel is 2.5 billion, nearly half of which is in China. The point is that in order to escape the last crisis, China has massively developed its productive forces, but it must find profitable outlets, which is increasingly difficult with the world market in crisis. So Keynesianism has not fixed China's problems. It's actually made them worse. And now China will not be able to repeat the same policies of the past 10 years. What is true for China is true for all other countries. Keynesianism will not fix this crisis. There is a limit to this spending. These debts must be repaid. Unlike the reformists, we do not limit ourselves to what is acceptable to the capitalists. We do not celebrate Keynes. We do not try and patch up capitalism. We put forward a socialist alternative, which means putting the working class in power. Thank you. Thank you, Nelson. I hope everybody enjoyed the discussion. Translation? Or do I have a translator? All right. Yes. So thank you, everybody, for the discussion. So now I will give it back to, to Rob to sum up the discussion. So Rob, if, if you can do around 25 minutes, see, perfect. Okay. All right, go for it. Uh, first of all, uh, thank everybody for participating. And I think that uh, it's been a very useful discussion. I think the uh, the objective of a discussion like this is to uh, create a thirst, I think, for comrades to go into this subject a bit more deeply. I know uh, Adam mentioned uh, capital, Marx's capital, which is obviously uh, a key work. It was the, it's, the, it's the life work, if you like, of, of Marx on economics. But of course, I think there's a, a word of warning that uh, I don't think um, perhaps comrades who are, are new uh, to the movement should, should jump into capital because it is quite a, quite a mouthful in one sense. Uh, I always remember that uh, Harold Wilson was the leader of the Labour Party in the 1960s. He uh, contemptuously said that he managed to read uh, the first line of the footnote in page one of Capital, and that's as far as he got. Or perhaps you can quote Marx uh, in response that uh, ignorance never helped anybody. And it is um, necessary for each and every one of us to try and conquer these ideas for ourselves, but there are smaller works by Marx, which are uh, more basic introductions, which are very good, uh, such as uh, uh, wages, um, or wage, labor and capital and uh, value, price and profit. 
I agree with uh, Joe who spoke uh, first of all uh, about the important uh, writing of, of Ted Grant, Will It Be a Slump, which is a, a brilliant defense of Marxist economics in the most difficult period of the uh, upswing, and where he explains in detail the reasons for the economic boom or upswing at, at the time. Obviously, uh, the downswing uh, um, took a bit longer than, than originally thought to develop, but obviously when it came, it came with a vengeance. Of course, uh, for us, we have to take the, the long view history. Uh, and it's clear that what, the, what the comrade said, that uh, capitalism is only a, a simple stage in the development of human history. In fact, the whole of uh, class society is only a very small segment of the, uh, of the time in which humans been, have been on this planet. And classes uh, were only able to come into existence once uh, society was able to produce a surplus above their basic needs. But this surplus, which was taken by the ruling class, allowed them the free time to develop ideas, science, culture, and so on. And it's been that the function of class society, however horrible it has been, is nevertheless is to, to, to develop the productive forces. And capitalism is the highest stage of this class, form of class society, which has now created a world economy, a world market, and it's created the material basis, which is the most important, for socialism, for classless society. Of course, uh, capitalism doesn't just disappear on its own accord, and it will resist uh, by all its means to, to depart to the scene of history. But in its turn, capitalism has created its own grave digging in the form of the working class, which is now the dominant force on, on the planet. And although it is an exploited class, its very conditions of work develop a collective consciousness. On the basis of events, it develops a class consciousness and at times a revolutionary consciousness. And of course, this is prepared precisely by the contradictions and impasse of capitalism. Of course, our, our task, if you like, is to um, demystify capitalism because the majority of people are mystified by uh, economic activity and the laws of, ca of capitalism because these laws operate behind the backs of society. And people's lives are dominated by money, by commodities. The market and market relations dominate everything. It dominates everyone. Everything has been turned into money relations under capitalism. It's only by the, the liberation of, of humankind through the socialist revolution will this uh, mystification uh, clear away. And even this uh, mystical substance called gold will lose its uh, mysterious uh, grip on people. I see in today's papers that gold has uh, risen uh, dramatically in the dollar's form. But it's only metal, and uh, as Lenin said, it'd be great to um, decorate uh, bathrooms after the revolution. It was interesting, uh, one of the comrades, I think it was Stefan, who said, who, who, who talked about the early period of capitalism. In fact, it's, it's interesting to note that um, um, in, in Britain, anyway, at least at the time of the Chartists, there were a whole number of uh, socialist economists before Marx. People like uh, John, uh, John Gray, William Thompson, Thomas Hodgkins, Hodgson, Hodgkinson. Uh, and they, they, their ideas were, were very radically, were based on the labor theory of value, but they drew revolutionary conclusions. Ten minutes. And they came quite close to this idea of, of surplus value and where it was coming from. But they didn't solve it. It was only Marx who was able to solve this question. But nevertheless, it's quite interesting. Um, you look at these, uh, these, these early socialist economists and they're, head and shoulders above today's left reformists in every country.
because they they drew revolutionary conclusions from uh, economics, and um, I agree with um, uh, Comed um, who raised this question of um, was it Keynesianism, Comrade Nelson. Uh, the, the, the Keynesianism is an attempt to patch up capitalism, that's all, and it can't do it. It's impossible. I think it was Largo Caballero, if I'm not mistaken, who said, uh, uh, you know, uh, you can't cure cancer with an aspirin, and you can't solve the capitalist system uh, by tinkering with it. And that's, and that's all the reformers want to do. They just want to tinker around with the system, uh, and they're terrified of the idea of revolution. But of course, uh, they, they do not offer a way forward. As Joe explained, you know, they come forward with different ideas like uh, universal basic income, but uh, capitalism can't uh, afford that. It can't even afford a minimum wage for workers. Of course, we're, we're in favour of every advance for the working class, wages, conditions, anything, everything. And we'll, uh, the fight to, uh, we'll fight to improve the conditions where we can, and we'll, defight, and we'll fight to, to defend the interests of the working class. And what we say, if capitalism cannot deliver the basic conditions of life for working people, then to hell with capitalism. And capitalism for the majority of people on this planet is, is a, a nightmare situation with difficulties all around. Poverty, squalor, homelessness, unemployment. And yet we have, we have all the wonders of science and of, of technology, the enormous possibilities of automation, of, um, of uh, information technology, of robotics. But all this terrifies the working class because it means they're going to lose their jobs. On a capitalist basis, such advances means mass unemployment. And not just uh, unskilled workers, and skilled, but also white-collar workers. Everybody could be affected by this. And yet, uh, a nightmare under capitalism, but if it was used uh, for the benefits of uh, humankind, working people, it would provide a, a paradise on earth. And capitalism can no longer develop the productive forces. It reached its limits. In other words, its historical justification for existence is now at an end. And the longer it's allowed to exist, the longer the misery will also exist. But it's uh, just like the other forms of society. They, they've risen and they've collapsed or gone by the wayside. And our task as the working class is to overthrow capitalism in order to end this, uh, these contradictions and, and crises that we face. You know, we can reduce the, the, the working week to, uh, what, 10, 15 hours a week. It's possible, even less, so that we can enjoy ourselves. I've got a book here by, by Paul Lafargue, The Right to be Lazy, The Right to be Lazy, arguing that, that uh, there's more to life than just work, 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 work. You know, we, we live to work and we work to live. That's what it is under capitalism. Where's the, where's the promises of the leisure time we were promised 50, 60 years ago? Things are getting worse, not better. The pension age has been raised again and again and again. So in other words, capitalism wants us to work until we die. That's the real message of capitalism and capitalist crisis. So therefore, the, pri the private ownership of the means of production is a barrier to the development of human society. The, the market economy is a, a complete barrier to human progress. But capitalism has done us this favor. It's brought into being the, the material basis, basis for a new world. But this could only be done and planned on a rational basis under the democratic control and management of the working class, where we can plan rationally the resources of society for the interests and needs of society. 
that the idea of, of uh, environmental disaster can be it can be ended on the basis of a rational plan of, of production internationally. Instead of the wastage that we have of, of unemployment, how ridiculous that people being paid not to work, to remain in idleness. And yet those who in work have to work longer and longer hours and are full of stress because of the workload that they face. 20 minutes gone so far. That can be put an end to. That can be ended. Once and for all. And then we can have, yes, not the duplication of, of capitalism and the overproduction of capitalism. What a crazy idea. We can, we can plan the things. After all, on the, on the basis of what we have now, the technology, the smartphones even, we have the ability to plan things in a very rational, sensible uh, way. And, and if that was done, we'd have a, a society based on... Uh, Superabundance of what we need, higher living standards for everybody, the ab- abolition of uh, of nuclear weapons and and and, all, and the paraphernalia of war, and a genuine use of the resources to to raise our cultural level all round, to abolish poverty, squalor, and want. In other words, what socialism offers us is paradise on earth, a wonderful life, and that's what we must fight for. An end to the misery of capitalism and barbarism, of a life of prosperity, peace, with no violence, that we can really live like human beings. That's the socialist future, and that's what we must fight for. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for that, Rob. That was great. So uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. So now we will, we will take a break uh, of one hour. And at 5.30 summertime, the second um, sessions of the day will start. We have the choice between a session on identity politics, one on Marxism versus post-colonialism, and one on the history of the IMT. All right, so thanks again for coming.